On April 4th, Bob Lee, a multimillionaire tech founder, was stabbed to death in San Francisco at 2.30 in the morning. Before anything was really known about the crime, people blamed Chesa Boudin, the former DA who was ousted last summer, for a general sense of danger in the city. Boudin was one of the more high-profile and promising figures in a wave of progressive district attorneys who ran on platforms of criminal justice reform. But he became associated with lawlessness and disorder, leading to his eventual recall. Where has that left the progressive prosecutor movement? You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, a senior editor at The New Yorker. Jay Caspian King is a staff writer at The New Yorker who lives in the Bay Area and has written extensively about race and politics. You'll hear from him today about the narratives around crime and homelessness and about the stop-and-start attempts to fix a broken system. So, Bob Lee, the founder of Cash App, was recently stabbed to death in San Francisco, which kicked off, you know, yet another news cycle about violent crime in progressive cities. Jay, what exactly happened to Lee, and how does his murder either fit into or complicate the existing narratives about San Francisco being... Um, a lawless hellhole. <laughs> you know, what happened to him was that it seems, or at least this is what the story from the police is and also the story in the press, which is that he got involved with somebody that he knew, you know, like somebody within that community of tech founders and people who work in, I guess, like the financial world of, of tech, which he was part of. Um, they had a late night encounter and it ended up with the one man's stabbing Bob Lee and that he died tragically because of that. Um, I live here in the Bay Area, and there had been about a week in which the San Francisco Police Department and the prosecutor's office did not really give out any information on what had happened. Like It was real radio silence in a way that was unusual. And to me, or I think to people who might have some more experience with crime reporting, like that generally means that they're kind of looking for a person, you know, like a specific person, and they don't want that person, you know, to run away, basically. And that generally when they don't know that much, that's when they release all the info that they know, because they're hoping that somebody can help them, right? But when they generally know what's happening, then they don't release that much information. Now, that isn't something that people in the public should know at any point, and it's not something that you would expect the public to know. But here in San Francisco, I think what it was, was that that dearth of information that was put out open up this gigantic vacuum in everybody's feelings about crime in San Francisco, regardless of what side they were on, right? They all came flooding into that breach. And because it was a high-profile murder, you know, like this was a, you know, this well-known tech executive in a city where those people are, you know, de facto the celebrities, I think that that sort of made it such a huge story and made it much bigger of a story than one one would expect from just, you know, one murder in a city where, you know, like all American cities, there are a lot of them. What were people speculating had happened to Lee? I mean, was it was the theory that was being promoted of his murder just, you know, this was a random act of violence and, you know, indicative of the kind of violence that happens on the streets of San Francisco all the time? Well, I think it depended on who you asked, but I think within the tech founder community, especially, you know, somebody like David Sachs, for example, who's a, you know, big VC investor and, you know, a big figure here in the Bay Area. He was speculating, you know, that it would have been a deranged homeless person. Those are his words, right? And I think that that's what most people thought because they couldn't think of, you know, why at 3 a.m. this man would be stabbed unless it was random. I think that people somewhat justifiably are 
are scared of going out because there is, you know, quite a bit of homelessness in San Francisco. If you walk in downtown San Francisco, you walk in the Tenderloin, you walk, walk in parts of the Mission, like you will see people who are not healthy, not mentally healthy. But the level to which the public fears that specific population of people, like far outpaces the actual violent crimes that that population of people do. The reason why they're scared of it is because it feels totally random, right? It's not something that you can really control if you're just walking by somebody and they just decide to stab you. Um, and I think all of that sort of came together and made this particularly toxic and full of speculation. How long have you lived in the Bay Area? I lived in San Francisco from 2004, I believe, to 2011 or 2010. And then I recently moved back uh, in 2020, right before the pandemic. So much of my adult life has been here, yeah. Basically, I'm wondering if homelessness and crime have gotten worse since you've been in San Francisco. Like, does it seem like there's both been a, an increase in crime and an increase in homelessness, and people are kind of conflating these two things and assuming that it's all of the homeless people who are committing the crimes, or has there mostly just been an increase in homelessness, and that has then changed the way that people view the city and just general perceptions of safety? There has definitely been an increase in visible homelessness since I first moved to San Francisco in 2004. It's bad, right? The problem is real. The amount of homelessness you see in underpasses, you know, under the freeway, the amount you see on the side of the road, it has exploded in a way that is shocking to people who have lived here for a long time, but also extremely shocking to people who have just moved here, right? Because they haven't seen, especially they come from the East Coast, where they haven't really seen anything like this before. And I do think for people it is a traumatic thing to behold. Like, I don't think that the response is exclusively one of like revulsion and like, go get a job. I don't think that's it, right? Like, I think that a lot of it does come out of a compassion and a bewilderment for, well, how is this possible, right? Um, I don't know. I, I just think a lot of people are in that space, right? Especially if they're younger, maybe, especially if they, you know, are wealthy and they sort of see San Francisco or like what they think the potential for the city is. And they, they feel like the city government isn't doing enough to address these problems. There's just a huge frustration that's built up about that. And, you know, there are many strategies or ways in which sort of progressive lawmakers try and deal with that type of frustration. One is just flat-out denial, which I, you know, think is silly and misguided. And the other is to try and present, like, facts as they come. But I think the facts are always going to lose out over the sort of anecdotal or even visceral personal experience of seeing somebody on the street in a state where you wonder if they're going to live through the night. Like that's a powerful experience, and people in the Bay Area, like if they live in certain neighborhoods in San Francisco, they do see it every day. Like there's there's no way to deny that that's true. I mean, there were a lot of like high profile individuals who were, you know, speculating certain things about Bob Lee's murder in the aftermath before the information came out of you know who had actually killed him and the fact that this was another person in the tech world. Were those people? I mean, is your sense that they're genuinely concerned about safety and anxious about? crime and encounters with crime? Or does it seem like they had a political agenda to push? I, I notice a lot of people invoking, you know, Chase Boudin, for example, oh, when, yeah. when talking yeah. about the, you know, Bob Lee's murder, but also just crime in general. I think that there's a, it's a mix of both, right? Like, I think that if you really, I don't know, were somehow able to plumb deep into their hearts, there is a sincere concern about crime in the city. And there is a sincere desire to do something about the homeless population, right? 
Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you would find much compassion for the homeless population there, but like, I don't think that this is all like some way to do electoral politics, nor do I think it's a way to sort of move in some sort of revanchist, like libertarian politics, right? The frustration and the reason why it all centers around Chesa is because I think that he, for whatever reason, became sort of the centerpiece for all progressive politics around crime, and that he became a very convenient punching bag for almost everybody in the city. Talking about Asian populations, you're talking about Latino populations, you're talking about black populations, you're talking about white populations who have lived in the Bay Area for a long time, you're talking about white and Asian populations that generally work in the tech industry, right? Everybody had a certain grievance with the way that the city got through COVID, right? And that some of the conditions of homelessness that got worse. And, you know, the city officials in San Francisco are very savvy. London Breed is a very smart person. You know, the mayor of San Francisco is very smart. And every politician in the area dumped it all on Chesa, right? Stuff that wasn't even his fault. Like, there would be a crime in Marin County, for example, right, which is across the Golden Gate Bridge. And people would be blaming it on Chesa. You know, he's like, oh, he's created like a Bay Area-wide fog of permissibility, right? <laughs> and, and, and his response is, you know, his responses to all that were very poor, you know, like he was always dismissive. His way of dealing with people was always like, oh, you're bad, you know, and I'm the smart one and I'm the good one and, and like you don't know what you're talking about. And like that just doesn't work, right? Like especially when you're talking about like murders and stuff like that and that just accelerated it and then it ended in his recall you know, I I think that it probably created a lot of problems, honestly, for, you know, the broader movement of these progressive prosecutors of which he is one, you know, um, and certainly the most talked about. So obviously, like, the optics were not great. He wasn't very good at responding to these critiques, as you said. But um, in terms of, like, his actual policies, did he do anything that conflicted with what he promised or that went beyond the progressive policies that he was sort of known for when he was brought into the job? Oh, no. I mean, I think that one thing that he can always hang his hat on is that he did basically exactly what he said he was going to do. The conditions around how those were accepted or how those were perceived, that's what changed. But he didn't really change much. I mean, one of the things I think that the progressive prosecutor movement should think about is that and this was something that Chase would sometimes say to defend himself, which is that they don't really have that much power to change anything. What they can do is on a case-by-case individual basis, let's say that there's 100 people in front of them in any given month or something like that, right? They can make 100 separate decisions on how to go ahead and prosecute these 100 people. That's the impact that they have. They can't really change the laws around any of this stuff, you know? Like, they can just make suggestions and they can just do their sort of thing on an individual case-by-case basis. And uh, when you think of it in that way, yeah, he basically did what he what he said. It does seem like people are still blaming him for things even though he is no longer the DA. How does that work? Well, um, you saw that when Bob Lee was murdered and people thought that it was a random attack by a homeless person, right? Um, you saw that people say stuff like, these are the conditions that Chase Boudin created. Like, this is the chaos that he created. San Francisco, I do think in terms of property crime, in terms of homelessness, in terms of just kind of like, when you walk around, you're just like, wow, like, this is not great. It has gotten worse. But almost none of, of that has anything to do with 
Chesa, you know, and you can disagree with all of his policies, but like, you know, the tenderloin was the tenderloin when it was the tenderloin, right? Like it didn't start three years ago. I don't know. I find that a lot of the blaming to be pretty specious. And I honestly think that it's distracting in a way where I do think there is like a very good critique to be made of the progressive prosecutor movement. But when the spray on the attacks is so wide, it just feels ridiculous. And that I think that that it's actually a kind of ineffective way to critique this movement. Because I think other than people who are always already predisposed to hate this guy, right? Like, they're just going to find that explanation to be kind of ridiculous. I mean, let's—yeah, so just in general, the progressive prosecutor movement, I mean, obviously, Boudin has become kind of the the face of it in a way, even though he's, um, you know, no longer the, the DA of San Francisco. Who are the other, um, like, major figures in it? Like, obviously, there's Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, but who are, who are the other ones, and how have they been doing? Like, have they managed to um, sort of avoid— the backlash that Boudin saw, or are they all kind of experiencing the same thing now? Well, there's Kim Fox, who is in uh, Chicago, right, Cook County. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like you said, there's Krasner, who is in Philadelphia. Those are the two big ones outside of Chesa, I think. Um, Fox and Krasner are very popular. Um, I think they both won re-election. They are supported by the population. And even though there are little, little bits of backlash in a similar way that there was to Chesa to Krasner sort of quickly died down. And like it was like a two-month thing instead of like a multi-year thing. Right now, I think the person who is emerging as somebody who is going to go through a lot of the same things that Chesa went through is across the bay in Oakland and Alameda County, that's where I live, Pamela Price. And Pamela Price is a, you know, career civil rights attorney. She was a public defender. And there's already grumblings of recalls. There are judges that are rejecting her, you know, what they see to be very lenient plea deals that she's striking with people. A lot of people from her office are quitting. These are like sort of career prosecutors who, you know, regardless who gets elected DA are going to stay in the prosecutor's office. A lot of those people have quit. And what they've done is that they've all started talking to the local media and the local media knowing, I think that Chesa was like a huge story for them, right? And crime is a huge story because Local news is basically just crime reporting. Yeah. Like they really picked it up. And so uh, Pamela Price right now, if you live in the East Bay, she is in the news constantly. And uh, you can sort of see the discontent rising. And I don't know, I, I find it very interesting that the two people in you know this supposedly extremely progressive part of the country are the ones that were in trouble all the time, right? And then... People like Kim Fox or, you know, in Chicago, where obviously Chicago is like, what, the last 10 years that anyone nationally talks about Chicago, they're probably talking about crime, right? Yeah. Um, and in Philadelphia, like those ones are pretty popular, right? And so there's a mixed bag of how these prosecutors are regarded by the public they serve. I mean, do you think that it's because the media is just reporting on these people so negatively that then the public, you know, is kind of forced to change their minds about these people who they they voted in? Or do you think that people are voting in progressive prosecutors because, you know, they run on a platform that sounds good, but then in practice? I mean, do you think that voters just don't really know what they're getting into when they elect a progressive prosecutor? Or is there just something else that's happening there? Well, I, I think that the answer is partially demographic in nature. This is how I, I guess I personally think about some of these problems. And so I could be wrong, but this is my sense of it, which is that 
these prosecutors, progressive politicians, kind of in general, tend to do best among black voters and then younger college-educated white voters who are very progressive. You know, like it's basically the gentrifying neighborhoods is where they do the best, right? Um, Entire left electoral strategies are hashed around this. San Francisco does not have a large black population, right? And the younger white population is pretty progressive. And the older white population is very progressive, much more so, I think, than the younger population. And I just think that he kind of ran out of support at some point for people who are going to always support him. San Francisco also has is one-third Asian, which is unusual for large cities. And that his handling of the Asian attacks, two of which the most high-profile sort of nationwide viral attacks against Asian people were, were in San Francisco, his sort of tone deafness in talking about some of that stuff, right? His sort of quickness to blame parts of the community for being mad and for not, you know, sort of understanding what the whole point of his whole thing was. Just as somebody who politics generally aligns somewhat with Chase's, like, I don't know, like, I think he just did a poor job communicating in that sort of way. And that what he didn't realize is that, like, these groups are organized. They've been organized for decades, right? Um, There's longstanding political organizing within the Chinese-American community, especially in San Francisco, and that they mobilized very quickly and sort of helped lead his recall. Uh, Oakland, of course, has a much longer standing and much more large black population than San Francisco. But over the past 30 years, it has been declining rapidly in number, right? And what has replaced it, much like San Francisco, is Latino and Asian immigrants. Asian immigrants are the fastest growing population in Alameda County. Mm -hmm. And I think that Pamela Price is sort of coming up against the same thing. Her big case, the one that is causing her the most problem, is the murder of a kid who was about two years old in a freeway shooting, right? And much like Bob Lee, like the terrifying thing about a freeway shooting, which is when two guys just start shooting each other and you get caught in the crossfire, is that it's random and it's terrifying. It's a horrible tragedy that this kid died in this way. And so her slowness in bringing charges against the three men that they caught for this crime. The idea and the perception amongst people within the Chinese-American community that she would be lenient against these people, I think has driven a ton of discontent. And because it happened literally just across the bridge from San Francisco, where all these same people are part of the same organizations, that media outlets are exactly the same. It's not like Oakland has its own TV network. (laughs) Um, We're just seeing a repeat of it. And I think that it's probably going to end in the same result, right, with a recall election. I don't know if it'll be successful or not, but I I think it's definitely going to happen. So do you think that if um, both of these DAs had sort of handled these high-profile incidents of violence against Asian Americans more elegantly or with more compassion that, you know, maybe there would be less backlash against them? Like, does there seem to be an issue with specifically with them dealing with certain communities and responding to them or dealing with like these really high profile incidents that blow up? And then those are just the things that cause it to all come crashing down. Um, I think for Chase, absolutely. I think maybe Pamela Price was kind of done in by what the perception of was of Chesa and his handling of crime like within immigrant communities who are much mm-hmm. more conservative, I think, than the black communities and black voters in, 
in the Bay Area. And I think that maybe her fate was already sealed, even though she won her election, right? It was yeah. a very close election. I think the second there was a crime like this, it was going to be handled in the same way. Unless she came out and immediately was like, I'm throwing the book at these at these people. And I guess the question that I had was just like, okay, well, if she just does that, right? High profile murders are generally in the Bay Area. It's the same thing as everywhere else. Like uh, if the assailant is black and the victim is black, it is not a high profile murder most of the time, right? If there is any type of crossover between races, then it's a high profile murder. That's why, you know, these Asian attacks are high profile murder. Then, then are you really being progressive at that point? You know, you're just like, well, <laughs> I'm only going to throw the book at murderers who kill non-black people, right? Or I'm only going to do it when it's like, when it's these specific demographics. And if it's like a white guy who works in tech killing another white guy who works in tech, then like that doesn't count, you know? Um, it only counts when it's this specific thing. It seems horrible to do that. And so I do sympathize with them on that account, right? Where I just don't think that you can create a tiered system where you're just like always thinking about public relations in the way that you handle your job. And yet if you don't, I think you're, you're sort of doomed. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, maybe this is has always been the case and I'm just new to this conversation, but the idea of like a DA having just like a really strong public presence and needing to be <laughs> kind of charismatic or to deal with certain communities the way that, you know, like a governor would need to is um, that feels new to me, or at least it feels newer in the in the past few years. Yeah, I find it also to be extremely weird, you know. Um, it's like, who are you voting for for DA? I mean, was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, when I was growing up in North Carolina, I knew who the district attorney was because he lived like two houses down from me. He was like our neighbor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that was the only reason, right? Like, it's not like these are high profile elected officials. Like, you generally don't know who it is unless you've committed a crime. And I think that that is one of the unintended consequences of this national progressive prosecutor movement is that all these people turn into huge political figures in their city in ways that their predecessors were not, right? I mean, Chesa had how many magazine profiles written about him nationally? How much of a national name was the district attorney of San Francisco compared to, say, the mayor of San Francisco? And I think it's strange to have this much attention on a prosecutor's office because, as I mentioned before, on a lot of this stuff, their hands are tied. And yet I think the size of their profile makes people think that they have powers that they don't. And I think that they get blamed for things that they shouldn't get blamed for. But then at the same time, it's just like, well, you've willingly created these celebrities, right? Like you can say no to doing national media profiles. You can ward off this idea that you're like this merry band of Yale-educated uh, super lawyers who have decided to commit their lives to like changing the world. Like Those are all narratives they put forward. So in that way, I do think they should bear some of the brunt of that, right? It's not like this all happened to them. Like They pushed a lot, too. You'll hear more from Jay Caspian King in just a moment. So earlier this week, um, Jim Jordan and House Republicans held a, a field hearing about violent crime in New York City, directed at Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, who recently indicted Trump. 
And, right. um, you know, a lot of the narratives of, you know, violent crime in San Francisco also kind of apply to New York. There's this question of, you know, is there a crime epidemic here? Is it just the fact that the city hasn't really recovered since the pandemic and everything feels worse and there are more homeless people? But it does seem like, you know, House Republicans are sort of seizing on crime as like this perfect partisan wedge. And I'm wondering if you feel like this is um, like crime has always kind of functioned in that way and served that purpose, especially, you know, given all your years in San Francisco, like if it's something that, you know, politicians there have long talked about and used to bring their opponents down or whether the focus on crime, you know, almost feels new or renewed, you know, in the, in the past few years. I don't think it's always a, a centerpiece of the way that people are talking. I think that what happened was that there was an actual pretty significant murder increase during the years of the pandemic that is now going down. Mm-hmm. And I think that at, if it continues to go down, I do think that it will become a much less central part of local and national discourse and politics. Uh, I don't think it is making the political hay that people thought it would, right? You had these second and third biggest city and like the country's mayoral elections just took place in the past six months, right? Um, and Rick Caruso, who was the tough on crime candidate, lost to Karen Bass. And uh, Paul Vallis in Chicago, who was a tough on crime candidate, lost to Brandon Johnson. And in both of those cases, the national media and a lot of the local media was convinced that, that Rick Caruso and Vallis were going to win because everyone was sick of crime, right? And both turned out to be not true. I think those types of lessons really resonate both with, you know, progressives and with the, you know, people who would run a tough on crime candidate. And I, I just don't think it is as politically powerful as it was like a year or two ago, or even when, you know, Eric Adams won office, like perhaps it was much more powerful then. But like right now, I think that we're in a time of receding importance of the crime question, perhaps except here in the Bay Area, you know, where it's still going strong. It seems like, you know, a lot of people are kind of in agreement about how drug crime should be dealt with or not dealt with, just in the sense that um, I think we all agree that someone shouldn't, you know, go to prison for life for being caught with a dime bag. But it's violent crime that really seems to divide people, even, um, you know, on the left. People are divided on how to how to deal with that. You know, when we talk about progressive prosecutors, I feel like, or just prosecutors in general, it's either like you're tough on crime or you're a progressive prosecutor. But Do you think that there is, like, I guess, like, room for nuance in the same way that there's room for nuance in um, just, like, normal conservative and liberal politics where, you know, you have, um, you know, senators who are, you know, further to the left than others? Um, I think that in cities where progressive prosecutors run, that that's difficult because one of the things that they do to get elected is that they take people who I think very fairly could be called middle-of-the-road type of prosecutors, and they make them seem like they're sort of revanchist, you know, law and order, lock them up type of people. And so uh, I do think there's a lot of bad faith tarring of the progressive prosecutors. But I also think that, you know, they give as good as they take. And so in those districts, I think it's very difficult to try and figure out what that would even look like or how the person could sort of talk about themselves in that sort of way. What also is happening is that in terms of the drug question is that fentanyl really is a problem here, right? People are dying of overdoses at a very high rate. And I do think there's a lot of genuine public concern about that. 
And nobody has figured out what to do about it from a sentencing and law enforcement perspective. Like how to deal with um, the people who are dealing the fentanyl and yeah. Right. And so the range of political opinions range from like, let's start a war with Mexico. And, you know, that's uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who another person in the Bay Area, um, you know, like that's his idea. <laughs> I don't know. It seems kind of crazy to me. Um, and then there are people who are like, well, let's do just harm reduction and let's sort of make sure that people who are going to take this drug get the care that they need. And that's very unsatisfying to the public as well. You know, and I think that between that and meth specifically, people are kind of trying to carve out some sort of specifics for those two drugs while still maintaining like, look, if you get caught with weed or if you get caught with like any other drug, then like, let's not be too harsh about it. But I don't know what that would look like, right? I mean, like, how could you have a two-tiered drug system where only these two drugs that happen to be politicized highly and also are very destructive are dealt with completely differently than everything else, right? Like, I think that that's, that's tricky. You know, like, that is probably a case where, like, doing more sort of root causes type of work might be more effective. But um, I always sort of worry when people try and downplay the effect of fentanyl in some of these cities just because the body counts, like, are the body counts, you know, Um, and they're high. Just thinking about gun violence discourse in general, I mean, it's something, you know, obviously an issue that both people on the left and the right, you know, feel very strongly about. But especially when looking at people who sort of lean more progressive, there's almost this tension, right, where it's like you have this, you know, there are all these calls to create new gun laws. And then I almost feel like some of those same people who were calling for more legislation are also um, getting angry at progressive DAs who aren't enforcing the current gun laws that are on the books and who, you know, are angry about, you know, how violent crime is being dealt with or not being dealt with. And I wonder if you think that there's, like, some way to, I don't know, some way to to solve this. Progressive prosecutors are being elected all over the country. But, like, how do you be progressive when it when it comes to guns? Yeah, I, I think that... Uh... I think that for them to be consistent, they will have to be somewhat lenient on some of these gun charges because a lot of the ways in which the gun charges work is that they're used as accelerators for existing charges, which may or may not be fair. And that I think in the places where these progressive prosecutors do their work, a lot of the times the people who are brought with these types of gun charges on top of them are are black and Latino, right? And that um, if one's stated mission is to stop sort of train of incarceration within those neighborhoods, then I do think that like uh, you can't just say, I'm going to just do the gun charge thing because there's a lot of guns, right? And that a lot of times they're found, sometimes they're planted, but you know, a lot of times they're found. A lot of times those guns have characteristics about them that explode the, you know, the sentencing charges, like, right? Like if they're unregistered, if they are ghost guns, if they're whatever, like the charges are much higher. And so I think that these progressive prosecutors will most likely have to, and I think a lot of them do, right? I think they're much more lenient around gun charges. Before this conversation, I was looking at this, um, basically this graph of like the state 
prison population, just like how many people in America are in prison. I mean, it's a, it's a staggering number, but just in terms of state prisons alone, it's like a little over a million people are in prison. And if you look at the breakdown of why they're there, more than 650,000 of those people have been locked up for incidents of violent crime. So murder, manslaughter, rape, assault, robberies, the kind of thing that even, you know, people on the left or a lot of people on the left would, you know, probably expect their DA to want to prosecute. And so it just seems really difficult. Like if you want to solve the problem of mass incarceration, I don't think that not charging people for being found with weed is really, you know, that's, it's, it's just a very small dent. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost non-existent at this point, right? Like uh, people getting, like they do get charged, but the fantasy that people have of, you know, what these prosecutors are generally doing, they're not processing all low-grade crimes, right? Like most of those are going to, they're going to figure out a way to either get a plea deal or, you know, some sort of way out of it. And then there's also this idea, like I think that when people are thinking or you know, sort of advocating for progressive prosecutors that everybody's innocent. And so, like, why would you have these crooked, hard-on-crime prosecutors who are going to put innocent people in jail, too? And I think one of the things, to their credit, that the progressive uh, prosecutors will tell you is that you can't base your politics around crime based on just innocent people and low-grade, like, weed offenders, right? Uh, those are the easy ones. Like the real hay comes from, well, how do you deal with somebody that you're pretty sure is guilty of doing something bad, you know? And I don't know, it's not something that I really, I don't wish to be in their shoes in any sort of way because it is a difficult conversation. And it's always going to lead to public backlash, right? Um, almost always when one of these cases gets lightly prosecuted um, or lightly sentenced. And you know, I've been thinking about these prosecutors for years now. And one of the questions I guess that I've had is that like, like, is this really the best way to pass reform in the criminal justice system? Like, is this movement really, like, is it really going to yield more good than it causes, you know, negative backlash? Is there something intrinsic about the position of the progressive prosecutor that is going to lead to public revolt in a lot of ways. Um, and the answers to the questions are mixed, as we said. You know, Krasner and Kim Fox are very popular, so there are examples of it not being. But uh, I think in a lot of places, like, maybe, you know, you can't avoid the type of fate that befell Chase Boudin. Jay Caspian Kang is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read his column, Bob Lee's Murder and San Francisco's So-Called Crime Epidemic, on NewYorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>